no one wants to buy a company where EBITDA was a million bucks for five, six, seven years, and all of a sudden something happened in the market where it popped up to two million. But that thing that created that, that pop is something that's not sustainable, or predictable, or stable for the future. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. Business buyers have a unique way of evaluating businesses. If your end goal is to sell your business, you may want to know what buyers value in a business as an asset to align your growth plans with their needs. Do buyers put more value on the team or the roster of clients? Do they emphasize more on technology or products? Would you get a higher return on homegrown software or an off-the-shelf ERP? In today's episode, we have our guest Nick Jackson from the Mendota Group who discusses what lifestyle brands can do to enhance their value for strategic buyers. He also discusses what founders can learn from CEOs who typically manage the business acquired by PE firms. Finally, he just on why they put negligible value to the technology when they buy lifestyle brands. Let me introduce Nick to you. Nick and his partners started the Manduta Group in 2000 with a focus on acquiring small to medium-sized manufacturing companies. In the last 20 years, Nick has worked on 19 different acquisitions, which includes all aspects of due diligence, negotiation, and financing of these transactions. Nick works closely with the management teams of their current holdings to help develop and implement strategies for growth. These companies collectively represent over $150 million in revenue, and more than 750 employees. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hey, Nick. Welcome to the show. Hey, Sam. Right. So just to kick things off, do you want to start with your uh, personal journey and what you are focusing on these days? Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. My name is Nick Jackson. I'm co-owner of a firm called the Mendota Group. Uh, we're a private equity uh, firm based out of Madison, Wisconsin. We are uh, what's referred to in the industry as a fundless sponsor, which means we do uh, acquisitions of small manufacturing companies. We, my partner and I invest our own personal capital into all those transactions, but then we partner with other capital providers to buy out those companies. Um, our focus in the last 20 years of doing this has been uh, looking for what we refer to as lifestyle companies that are in the range of a million to 3 million of cash flow, typically 10 to 50 million of revenue. And, you know, our focus is to kind of come in, provide the entrepreneur a transition to a different phase of their life, and then take a controlling interest in the company and work closely with the management team that exists there to kind of improve the company and move it from a lifestyle focused business uh, and move it more toward a, a growth and, and a profitable business for the future. So. Um, we're always excited to talk with any entrepreneur or owner who's uh, not only looking for a way to to uh, sell their business, but looking for better uh, 
better investors that can come into their uh, business and help their team to, to grow into the future. Okay, that's uh, very interesting. And uh, I want to dig deeper into, into that. But before we sure. get there, I had one comment. I appreciate you guys because you guys actually are sort of the catalyst for growth. And that's the purpose of this podcast, okay? We focus right. a lot on growth. So yeah. in your opinion, Nick, what is your perspective on growth? What does growth mean to you? Well, it means to, to us as professional investors, growth means two things. The obvious one is if we grow a company, the value of the company grows and we as investors see an increase to, to the value of our investment. That's, that's the obvious one. But the more important one in my mind is if you have growth of the business and, and profitable growth, not just top line growth for the sake of creating more activity, but if you have profitable growth in a business, that requires a very, very clear strategy. It requires lots of challenges to be tackled and, and, uh, and lots of activities to be executed to, to really have growth. And so we believe that a company that is on a path of very, very strategic and deliberate growth will do a great job of attracting and retaining great talent. People don't want to necessarily work at a company that's just even keeled and doing doing the same business for 10 years. People want to be part of a winning team. People want to come in and, and be in, um, challenged in their positions. And I think you know, growing companies and working hard to win in markets is a big part of that. So we think growth is a big part of attracting and retaining great talent. Okay, so that's a very interesting point there. And I actually wanted to cover that later in the in the interview. Yeah. And since we are already on that, so I want to cover that now. So sure. why is talent so important for the growing company? And why do you believe that lifestyle businesses, and you refer to some of these starting businesses as as lifestyle businesses, and I have seen a lot of other people referring to it as lifestyle businesses as well, such right. as Jim Gitney, okay, and we did interview with him. So why is talent so important? And why do you believe that you guys are better positioned to attract the talent as opposed to the founders? Yeah, well, I think, you know, like many people say, people are, are the, the foundation of a business. They really are, especially a manufacturing business. We have many key people that are helping us make our product and get it, get a high quality product out the door on time every day. And then we have all the people, you know, outside of our shop floor who are helping to organize and, and be prepared to manage our financials and, and handle customers and deal with sales. So, employees are just a critical part of executing our strategy. These are, these manufacturing companies are relatively complex and they can't be made successful with just a handful of people at the top figuring things out. So we want people, again, we want our employees to feel like they understand the direction we're headed, that they understand the financial and strategic ex expectations of the business. And we want them to feel like their position is very key to that, whatever, whatever role they have. And if they feel that they understand what they do and how it fits 
into our strategy, then we think they'll be more excited about being on the team and, and moving us forward. Okay, interesting. So you touched a little bit on, on value of the company and value could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, you touched a little bit on the revenue and cash flow as well. But right. when, you, when you buy these companies, what do you look for in terms of value? Do you have any specific KPIs that you like to look for? There, there's some very traditional valuation metrics that we use in the industry. You know, most in this part of the world, most people value the business on a uh, what's called EBITDA, which is earnings okay. before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Or essentially, yeah. it's, a, it's a rough estimate of operating cash flow of the business. And most people, uh, most firms will, will look at some multiple of that value or the, of that cash flow as a way to kind of set a valuation. But then there's lots of other statistics like how, how what kind of CapEx is required in the business and how consistent has that cash flow been over recent years. So, you know, we use those metrics as kind of an early quick indicator of what do we think this business is generally worth? And then we use, you know, more detailed information we gather in diligence to say, to what extent do we want to be at the upper part of that range or the lower part of that range? Okay, interesting. So have you seen any specific red flag that you typically notice when you when you look at these companies that no, 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 this is not the company I definitely want to talk to? Sure. Yeah, there, there's, you know, there's numerous times where we will begin the process of, of uh, being engaged with a company and we'll look at their, look at their financials and learn about their earnings and start to get our head around what we think evaluation is. And, and one of the real obvious red flags is if we can find find out that the earnings they recently had are somehow an anomaly to history. No one wants to buy a company where EBITDA was a million bucks for five, six, seven years, and all of a sudden something happened in the market where it popped up to two million. But that thing that created that pop is something that's not sustainable or predictable or or, um, stable for the future. So that's a big part of our early on process is digging digging into the financials and digging into the reasons why the company's performance is what it is and, and trying to draw conclusions about if we think that's sustainable and something that we feel we can invest in long. Okay, so I like to make the com- uh, analysis comprehensive, okay? And I like to look at both perspectives. Sure. So the positive yeah. and negative. So let's say, and my friend, Kurt Anderson, we did an interview with him as well, and he likes yeah. to refer this as soulmate, okay? That's his comment. So let's say if you were looking for a soulmate here in terms of your company, in terms of your dream, dream company, okay? What are going to be some of the metrics that you are going to look on the balance sheet and financial statement? So let's say if I'm trying to, you know, propose myself as your soulmate, Nick, and I'm presenting my <laughs> financial statements to you, okay? So how do you think I'm going to be your soulmate? I mean, what are what is some of that criteria? Yeah, as far as uh, specific metrics and, and financial metrics? So let's say if I showed you my financial statements right at this moment, yes. okay? And you are going to be like, you know what? I am going to come after Sam because this is my dream company. Okay. I'll do yeah. anything and everything to please Sam and, and get this transaction. So yeah. what is that dream company for you? Well, a uh, dream company for us is anybody that is any company that's north of a million dollars of EBITDA. Okay. Uh, closer to 2 million would even be better, but, but anything uh, greater than a million dollars of EBITDA, we would prefer that that business, that their EBITDA percentage 
is better than 10% of revenue. You know, we, we don't like necessarily to participate in businesses that are very low margin, but very high volume. Not to say those are bad businesses, but those don't, just don't fit our skill set. Uh, so we like to see a situation where somebody's even does at least 10% of their revenue. And then as far as the rest of the metrics go, it's really looking at one of the particular things we tend to look at is how much of the company's revenue exists as profitability after you take out variable material costs of the business. Because in manufacturing, okay. a large part of the business is material. Yes. So we look at that revenue minus variable material cost as uh, what we call material margin. And we like to see that be a fairly robust uh, percentages, usually over 55% if possible, um, because then that leaves plenty of room for the rest of the business with people and SG&A costs, things like that, to, to still maintain good profitability. And then, you know, after that, after we've kind of determined those kind of basic financial metrics, then we really look at what's the customer concentration. We really don't want to see one customer be greater than, let's say, 25% of the, of the revenue, unless there's a really, really good reason that concentration is valuable. We want to know that there are customers who the business has worked with that are name brand, decent sized companies that we feel with some more specific and directed sales effort, we could we could get deeper and more involved with those customers to grow the business. Cause we all know that growth, the easiest growth comes from growing your existing accounts versus trying to win new. And then, you know, I think the last is kind of looking at the, the salary and compensation structure throughout the business and just making sure that, you know, things are in line, that there's good equity and consistency across the business and that, you know, there's some good rationale to how people are paying and compensating their Okay. And do you pay attention to historical growth as well? I don't know how many SMBs are or can claim that they are going, let's say, uh, 10%, 20% every year. I don't know if, if that is even feasible. So do you look at that? Yeah. You know, I, I, interestingly enough, I think even small manufacturing companies can claim that type of growth because oftentimes... You know, if you think about it, if we're buying a company that's 15 million of revenue and, and million and a half to 2 million of EBITDA, it's likely in a market that's very, very large. So if you're a $15 million revenue company doing some type of metal forming or, or other product, there's that market is huge. And so doubling the business over the course of three to five years is not, is not necessarily that outlandish, knowing that you're still a very, very tiny piece of the market. Uh, if you get to 30 million. So we look at historical growth to some degree so that we can understand what changed. But again, by definition, we're more interested in a lifestyle business. And, and in that definition, the owner has achieved all of the financial success they want to achieve. The business is generating profitability and cash flow that meets the owner's personal requirements. And so by definition, the, the owner hasn't really cared so much or, or really drove hard at growth. So we aren't looking for somebody that's got a 15% cager uh, because we know by definition, we're buying a business that the owner didn't care so much about that. And we're yeah. hoping that we can come in and active, put, put that business with the management team on that kind of path. Okay. And so what are some of the factors that these companies are trying to sell? Obviously, one of them is going to be, you know, owner is is, is complicated <clears throat> now. They want to retire. That's definitely one of the factors. But what are the some other factors that companies want to want to sell or want to hire you? And when you say 
what they want to sell, you mean factors that they're trying to tell us about in terms of why their business is worth buying or what they're selling to their customers? If they are in the market, they are there for a reason. Either the growth has slowed down or they don't feel that they can grow by themselves yeah. or you know the owner is just done and they don't really have a sustainable plan after yeah. that. So there must be a list of factors why these companies come to the market. Sure. Yeah, I think most often I would say the we've done 19 different transactions over 20 years. So I would say the majority of the time that the reason the owner is selling to us is because they've gotten to a point in their career, whether it's what they've created in wealth or what their age is or what their family situation is or whatever, they've gotten to a point in their career where they would like to kind of separate from the business and devote their time and financial resources to other factors, whether it's retirement, whether it's other businesses, whatever. And so they're looking for this transition out of the out of day-to-day operations of their existing business, and they're moving to a different phase of their life. And the people that they have in their business are not able or capable of pulling off, let's call it a management buyout. So they need somebody to come in who can not only evaluate the business, but has the, the wherewithal and the capital to be able to complete that transaction. And so that's almost always uh, the reason the person's selling. Of course, they're going to tell us about their company and why their team is great and why their customers are great and all those things that we evaluate in our due diligence process. But that's uh, almost always the the uh, instigator of somebody who wants to sell, is just moving to a new phase of life. Okay, interesting. So obviously in in your space, the people is not going to be as much of a factor in terms of creating that sustainable plan for the company. And when we look at the value of the company, people, process, and technology, these are going to be three factors on which you will evaluate, you know, how much the company is going to be worth. So in this particular case, let's say if the owner or key executives, they want to retire, people are not as important, I, I would say, right? I mean, there are going to be other knowledge workers who you definitely want to retain, Otherwise, you might not be able to run the operations, right? But still, I don't know how much price tag you sort of put on the people factor because you are going to bring the new audience who are slightly more capable in in growing the company. So in terms of people, process, and technology, which is your biggest variable in terms of value? Can you touch on that? Yeah, I, I actually, I would probably say that people and process are the most important. Okay. technology may be the least important. And that may be confusing, but the reason I say that is, again, we're trying to buy a company that has been stable and profitable, but hasn't been growth-oriented. So almost by definition, the amount of technology they've injected into the business over the last couple of years, whether it's new machines or whether it's an ERP system or whatever, is usually pretty de minimis because they haven't felt the need to use that technology to support growth because they haven't necessarily cared about sustainable, significant growth. So we put a lot of value on the people and the process. And what I mean by that is if if a company has good processes in place, they not they may not be growth-oriented processes, yeah. but if they're profit-oriented processes, meaning the team had a good way of maintaining profitability even though revenues were fairly stable, that's a reflection of a team that understands how to manage costs, how to keep pricing in place with customers, how to manage their purchasing processes, right? Those are all processes that are important to maintain profitability. And then, you know, we're going to look at the people and we're going to evaluate all those people because we're going to keep nearly everybody in the business. We don't ever go into a business buying it saying, oh, these are all the people we're going to eject out of the business. That just doesn't happen. These are all great people. 
They've built nice, profitable companies. Some of them may not like our vision, so they may choose to leave over time, but but we're going to keep the people. And so when we're evaluating the people and setting, setting our valuation, we know that these are people that can maintain the profitability of a business. What we're really trying to see is to what extent are there people that can morph to our new philosophy of, hey, we're going to put this company on a growth path. And usually we do have to bring in some others to kind of help bring an outside perspective, um, starting with a new CEO, but bringing outside growth perspective. But, you know, we're often evaluating those people to make sure they're going to be excited about this new phase and uh, be interested to, uh, to, you know, join us on that new path. Okay, so I, we are actually going to touch a lot more on, on the technology aspect of this, because uh, yep. you mentioned that technology, you don't put a lot of value which is slightly counterintuitive in, in, in my opinion. Most people would yeah. think that technology would have probably large dollars. And by the way, I mean, technology could be a lot of different things. And uh, unless right. we are talking about commoditized product here, uh, then it's a different case. But technology could be your ERP system. It could be your yep. machines. It could be your patents as well. If somebody has patent, I'm pretty sure you are putting a large, large dollar on that because that's a oh, yeah. fixed stream of revenue for you uh, over the period of time. I don't know, you know, how much expiration is going to be for patents, but typically that is going to be for like, you yeah. know, 17, 20 years. So that's a that's a huge jackpot for <laughs> for an sure. investor, right? So yeah. uh, so tell us, you know, why you don't put value on on ERP system, and I have seen lifestyle brands spending millions of dollars in building their unique processes <laughs> and i'm yeah. i'm hoping that they are thinking probably they might be a software company and they might be able to sell that yeah. out for uh, you know millions of dollars but you are putting zero dollars so tell us more yeah so first off let me define technology in a couple different ways when we look at technology in a business it kind of can fall into three buckets you know as you say the ip or product technology our companies typically don't have a robust set of IP. They're not innovators, product developers so much. Um, if it's there, we would love it, but that just hasn't been very typical. These are fairly mature businesses, so the cutting edge technology that translates IP is not real. The other technology is any technology for actually manufacturing the product, whether it's machines, robotics, things to help with our quality systems, other automation, that kind of technology is very valuable to us. And to the extent that a team shows that they use it and not only use it to manage costs, but use it to kind of convince their customers that they have a unique way of making the product in an efficient manner, that's very valuable. And then the last is really what you're talking about, ERP or other information systems inside the business. Look, we would love it on the day. And we've had some circumstances where the company we bought, the team was very, very plugged into their ERP system, was using that data on a very regular basis to make good decisions about growth and profitability. And to the and we can tell from the day we start uh, our due diligence whether people have a command of their data out of their ERP system. So if they do, that gives us great hope and lots of good uh, valuation we put on that because we know that team is really living by the data in their business. What we more often find, though, is that they use their ERP system for maybe basic accounting, a little bit of inventory. They don't really use it for, let's say, shop flow or or uh, uh, or scheduling or things like that. And what typically has happened is the, the, the entrepreneur had has been running the business for 15, 20 years and has a complete command 
of everything about the business. And so if he or she is that intimate with the business, understands the margins like the back of his hand, can do quotes on the back of an envelope and understands, you know, what's broken in the business if they get behind on shipments, that entrepreneur is not going to put a lot of value on an ERP. And they certainly aren't going to drop two fifty, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars on an EMP ERP conversion because they're saying, I've run this business for 20 years. I know every aspect of it. And that's great. And I don't blame them for not investing in it. But for us, when we come into the business and we say, okay, entrepreneurs moved on, now we've got a management team that's got to grow this business and we got to decide where we want to invest capital and what customers and how we want to do, how we want to change pricing and all these things that require good analytics and data, having an ERP, bringing eventually an ERP uh, system into that so that we all have better data is going to be really, really critical for the future. Okay, so some of my audiences, obviously entrepreneurs, and as um, I'm pretty sure you would agree with me that they are super, super passionate people. And yeah. I'm an entrepreneur myself, and as entrepreneurs and lifestyle brand, we can do anything and everything, and we obviously work hard. Right. And obviously, one of our goal is going to be to exit the company and probably maximize um, the amount of dollars that we can get because these are our life savings. Sure. If you think about yeah. it, right? So let's yep. say if you were us. What would be your advice from day one? Let's say if I want to maximize the value of my company, I'm building a company, I'm building a manufacturing or a distribution company, and I want to maximize the amount of dollars that I can get as part of exit or sure. as, as just a growing company. So what would be your advice? Yeah, well, obviously, the as I mentioned earlier, maximizing the dollars of, of exit value are based on the level of your earnings. So that's the obvious one is increase earnings, but that that's too easy. You know, I, I would kind of, my advice to people as they're thinking about an exit and preparing for, for an exit in our world is, first of all, make sure you understand exactly why you make money. You, you have to be able to demonstrate to somebody on the outside where the profitability is, why it's existed, why it's sustainable, and why it's going to continue at a level that is, you know, at current levels or better. Secondly, I think the more data, so this comes back to the ERP question or other, other ways to have data, the more data that people can provide to substantiate that conclusion of where, where the earnings are and why they'll, why they'll uh, continue, that the more data, the better. So being really prepared with good, solid data, and if they don't have it today, start collecting it now so that they have it a year or two. And then the third thing I would say is make sure that the team of key people, whether it's the management team or other key people, that they really understand and they all agree with the conclusions that that entrepreneur has about why we make money and how that's going to continue in the future. Because in the end, we want, as buyers, we want to make sure that not only is the company profitable, but that everybody that's critical on the team actually understands why they're profitable and, and how they manage that, that they have a command of each aspect of their business and they can quote unquote manage that profitability. Not that they got a little lucky, a few yep. key customers bought a bunch of stuff from them and they had a little pop of earnings for a year. So it's gotta be intentional and having the team be able to sit in a room with us and really explain where they make money and how they're, particular discipline or team affects that is real valuable to us. Okay, so that's it for today, Nick. Do you have any any last minute closing thoughts by any chance that you might have for our listeners? 
No, I well, Sam, I appreciate the time. It's it's been great to be on the show. And again, my advice to everybody is if you're thinking about selling your business, and even if you're in a valuation phase, not quite ready to sell, but want to talk to somebody who does this on a daily basis and want to learn about how to prepare, they can find me on the Mendotagroup.com. I'm I'm happy to talk to anybody. I, I enjoy uh, talking to entrepreneurs about their business. I have a lot of respect for the passion and, and the risk-taking that entrepreneurs uh, bring to it. And if I can be helpful to them as they're evaluating the future exits, uh, I would love to do that. Okay, and I can attest to that. I mean, Nick is a fun guy. Everybody should reach out to him. He's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun conversation so far. I have enjoyed our interaction. Nick, It's it's been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. All right, Sam. Thanks a lot. Have a great one. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests, and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Nick, head over to the mendotagroup.com. It's T-H-E-M-E-N-D-O-T-A-G-R-O-U-P.com. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Damon Pistolka from Exit Your Way, where he discusses what buyers look for in a business while buying it from business owners. Also, the interview with Jim Kidney, where he discusses how the need for people, processes and technologies change at each inflection point of business growth. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to get you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.